0: for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water.
1: All right. Well, good morning, New City. It's great to be with you today, Uh, whether you are in person here or online, it's so good to be with you. My name is Roger Rushing, and I am the youth pastor here at New City, and I'm excited to get to share with you. Before we get into our message for today, though, I want to remind you that this is the first Sunday of Lent. So Lent has begun. If you're not familiar with Lent, it's the 40 days, not including Sundays, leading up to Easter. So it's a time for preparation and, uh, and kind of introspection and also just a time to grow closer to god and to help us do that uh, pastor christian has created and and put together a lint guide for us so if you're here in person there are a few of those hard copies uh in the back you can grab one on your way out but for everybody there's also a digital version available and it's not too late to get started on that because this is the first week so Now's a good time. Also, it's a good time to get connected with a community group as our community groups will be going through that Lent guide together weekly. So if you would like to to have a communal experience of this time of Lent and exploring some of these practices that Pastor Christian has laid out for us, uh, get in touch with us, get in touch with with Christian. He would love to get you connected to one of those CGs. So our story today, as we continue in our series of of The Word Became Flesh, our story today uh, is one of my favorites in the Gospel of John. I absolutely love this story but it does present a couple of unique challenges when it comes to preaching it. Uh, The first is, it is, it's kind of long. We didn't read it all today, but it's 42 verses. And that's why we didn't read it all today. So it's, it's pretty long. There's a lot of detail. There's a lot of stuff going on and we're not going to go through it line by line today. Instead, I'm going to tell you the story, Uh, but I do encourage you to, to later today, to, to break out your Bible and to read it for yourself. The other challenge though is as long as it is, as lengthy as it is and as detailed as it is, John of course leaves out a lot of the background information uh, that his audience would have that we don't have. So there are actually a lot of really important details missing because he's speaking to first century Jews and not to modern westerners, right? So today we're going to try to tease out some of those things, we won't be able to get into all of the details there, but there is some groundwork that I want to lay and some things that I want to help us see. Most importantly, kind of the biggest thing I want us to see right away is that this conversation should never have happened. Uh, It shouldn't have taken place because this woman really is not, she's not qualified to have this conversation with Jesus. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but there were at least three things that would have disqualified this woman from even having this conversation with Jesus. Those three things are, first of all, she's a woman, right? Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that, but that seems to be the easiest one for us to kind of get our minds around. Uh, The second one is, she's that kind of woman? And we'll talk about what that means. And then the third one, which honestly is probably the hardest one for us, is she's a Samaritan woman. So I want to take a look at these and give us some of, some of the details behind why these three things would disqualify her from having this conversation, why we shouldn't even have this story available to us. The first, as I mentioned, is she's a woman. And maybe that's not super surprising to us, but maybe you're able to see that in other cultures and certainly other times, the the way that men and women are treated are very different. And there are all these kind of spoken and unspoken rules about how men and women are supposed to interact. And we certainly have those in our own society, but sometimes it's easier for us to see them in others. And definitely, if you look at different cultures around the world, you probably know what I'm talking about. Well, when you get into ancient cultures and ancient Near East cultures like this one, uh, they were very stringent rules. And a lot of them were not just unspoken, but many were spoken and even written down. And so there were really strict rules on how men and women could interact with one another and when they should, how they should, all those things. And Let me just give you an example. So Jesus is a rabbi, and let's say that you've got a rabbi who's married. That, That rabbi who's married wouldn't even usually speak to his own wife in public. He would only speak to her in public if it was absolutely necessary. I mean, that gives you an idea of how stringent these rules were. And if you had a man who's not married and you have this woman who's unaccompanied, they definitely should not be speaking together. In fact, there were specific rules on how Jesus should have acted when this woman showed up to the well. One of those was he was to step away. They even lay out how the distance that he was supposed to step away from the well. It should have been about 20 feet. He should have just stepped back and given her her space. And he would do that for two reasons. One is to let her know that she's okay, that she's safe, that she's not going to be attacked, he's not a threat. But honestly, the bigger reason was to make sure that there was no possibility of a scandal. No way that somebody happening upon that well would see these two alone together. Instead, they would see the man had stepped back, had done the appropriate thing according to kind of the morals at the time. So this conversation never should have happened. It's not as though Jesus could step back and then talk to her either. For an unaccompanied man to speak to an unaccompanied woman alone together, it's just, it's scandal beyond scandal. So this conversation should not have taken place, but it's not just that she's a woman. She's that kind of woman. What do I mean by that? Well, we aren't told a lot of detail, but there is an important thing that John tells us, and that is that this woman comes to the well at the sixth hour, which is noon. And there are a couple of reasons why she might come at that time. See, typically she would come with all of the other women of her village, and they would come in the morning because, one, you want to get your day's worth of water. Two, you want to do it before it gets hot. And three, they would do it together, but this woman comes alone. So either it means that she's, she's on the outs, that she's an outcast from her people. And we don't know exactly why that is, but there's also a possibility that she comes to the well because she knows that around midday, that's when travelers might be at the well. And there are certain things that she might want to to get from those travelers. She might be seeking to, to connect with the travelers, if you get my drift, right? So not only is she a woman, but she's a woman who's an outcast by her own people and quite possibly because of the lifestyle that she finds herself living. So she should not be able to talk with Jesus. And then there's a third one. She's not just a woman or an even outcast woman. She's a Samaritan woman. And I know we've talked about this before. We've talked about Jews and Samaritans and how they don't get along, and John reminds us of that here, that these two groups don't mix. But I think it's important for us to get a little bit of the history of what's going on so that we can understand exactly how audacious this is, that Jesus doesn't step away from the woman, that he's willing to talk to a woman at noon, but that he's even willing to engage a Samaritan woman at noon. So if we want to see how this conflict works out, we've got to go way back. So we've got to go way back. So we've got the kingdom of Israel that kind of comes together under King David. That's where it starts. He has a son, Solomon, who keeps it together and expands the territory. But he does a lot of things that the people don't like. He has some really intense policies and all kinds of stuff that we don't need to get into. But the end result is when Solomon dies, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel revolt. They break away and they form their own kingdom. They keep the name Israel, but they form the northern kingdom of Israel. So you've got these 10 tribes up here, and then you've got Judah and Benjamin left at the bottom. Judah is where we get Jews, right? It's also where Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. It's a pretty important place. But these 10 tribes break away, and for a while, they're their own kingdom. But fast forward, and we have this, this ancient superpower called Assyria. And Assyria comes in at one point, invades the northern kingdom, and conquers it. And Assyria had this foreign policy where, when they conquered a people, they would remove most of the people from that land, and then they would forcibly relocate them and scatter them throughout other conquered lands. This way they felt that it was less likely that the people would be able to join together and revolt and cause issues for them. So they would scatter them and they would repopulate these other places where they'd done the same thing. So they did that with the northern kingdom. Those 10 tribes are basically lost to history. They just get absorbed and scattered throughout Assyria. But as the Assyrians have more people to scatter from other, country, other conquered lands, and they scatter them in northern Israel. But the thing about Assyria was they were polytheistic. They believed in a lot of different gods. And one of their key beliefs was gods were bound to geographical territories. And they didn't want to upset these gods because they thought that this would bring curses on them and all this kind of stuff. So they actually leave a priest there in the northern kingdom to teach the new people the way of the local god, the way of Yahweh. And so these relocated people over generations, they become followers of Yahweh. They learn the Torah, the the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, (laughs) left that one out. They learn the Pentateuch, they learn the ways of Yahweh, and they begin following after Yahweh. But there are some important distinctions between their following Yahweh and how the Jews follow Yahweh. One of the biggest ones is the Jews see Jerusalem as the holiest place. And within the holiest place, they have the temple built on a mountain that they see as the holy mountain of God, and this is the holiest place. This is where heaven meets earth. Well, the Samaritans these northern people who have been re-scattered, they become the Samaritans, they don't have access to Jerusalem. So not surprisingly, they reinterpret the scripture, they come up with a different holy mountain. And on that holy mountain, they build their own temple. But in most every other way, they follow Yahweh the same way, but the problem is the Jews never accept the Samaritans as people of God. And so there becomes this, this big struggle as they try to decide who are the real people of God. The Samaritans say it's us. We understand we've got the right mountain, the right temple. We do all the right things. We are the true descendants of Abraham, the true people of God. And the Jews say, that's ridiculous. You can't even claim Abraham. We have Jerusalem. We have the holy city where the throne of David is. We have the temple where God is. You're not, you're imposters. You're Gentiles just kind of pretending. And so, Over the years and over generations, this conflict continues to rise. Well, eventually, about 180 years before Jesus is born, the Jews, a group of them invade uh, the Samaritan territory, and they go to that holy mountain, and they destroy the temple. So the Samaritan's temple is destroyed by the Jews. You can see where this conflict is just getting worse and worse. Fast forward to a few years after Jesus is born, the Samaritans get their revenge. So at the time of Passover, which was the holiest time of the year for the people of Israel, what they would do is at midnight, the high priest would throw open the gates to the temple and everybody would come in and begin to celebrate and begin to celebrate Passover together. Well, unbeknownst to the the Jews at the time, there were a group of Samaritans who had infiltrated their city. And when the gates were thrown open, they infiltrated the temple and they began to scatter about bones of dead people. And in the ancient world there were a lot of things that could make you unclean but pretty much the most unclean was the dead so they desecrated the temple and made it completely unusable for passover so you can see this conflict just keeps going and going and going and this is why it's so crazy that we have this story the another story called the good samaritan because in that story we find that the samaritan is the hero and the the neighbor to the man who was beaten but there is no such thing as a good Samaritan for a Jew. And so we have this woman who three times should have been disqualified because she is a woman, she's that kind of woman, and she's a Samaritan. And yet this Jewish rabbi comes and sits at the well and asks her for a drink. See, because of who this woman was, we shouldn't even have the story this conversation shouldn't have taken place. Because of who this woman was, we shouldn't have this story, but here's the thing. This story isn't just about who this woman was. The story is about who Jesus is. It's not just about who this woman was, it's about who Jesus is. But I don't wanna skip ahead too far. So, so here Jesus is, and he's sitting at this well, he's thirsty. This woman comes and he says, give me a drink. Now the Samaritan woman looks at him and says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? See, she would have known that to the Jews, everything about her is unclean. We're told Jesus has no vessel, no way to draw water. Okay, But the bucket that the Samaritan woman brings, it's unclean anything that touches it becomes unclean. Any vessel that she would transfer that water to, to give Jesus a drink becomes unclean. If Jesus were to take that and then to take that uncleanness into him, he would become unclean because the way that it always works is that whatever is, whenever something clean touches something unclean, the clean is made unclean. That is always the way that it works. And so she knows that the typical Jewish man would see everything about her as dirty, unclean, unapproachable. So she says, how do you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And then Jesus says this to her in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So we don't see it here, but Jesus has a little play on words going on here. He talks about living water. And in the ancient world, there were two types of water. There's still water, like the water in the well, for instance, or water that you would have in a jar somewhere. There's still water. And then there's living water. Living water is any water that's moving. So streams, rivers, it has life, right? It's living water. But here's the thing about living water, in order to do all of the purification rituals that both the Samaritans and the Jews had, they all required living water. This was the water that could take that thing that was unclean and purify it and make it clean. So Jesus isn't just saying to her, hey, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink and I'd do some cool magic trick. and make some water come up out of the well. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, if you knew who I was, See, you think you know who I am, and you think you know how I see you. But if you knew who I was, you would ask me for this living water. And he tells her that it's this living water that will satisfy her thirst. He says, look, you can just keep coming back to this well, day in and day out, but you're always going to be thirsty. But if you'd asked me, I would give you living water, and you would be satisfied. And So she says to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Maybe she thinks he's crazy, but it sounds like an offer that's too good to be true, so she doesn't pass it up. She says, sir, give me this water. And then it feels like Jesus just takes this hard turn, and her reply to her is, go call your husband and return. And it sounds like like it has nothing to do with her request, She's, he's just said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. And she says, Great, give me living water. And he takes this complete turn. He's like, Go call your husband. But I think we'll see that this isn't what's happening. Jesus is actually beginning to answer her question. So he says to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says to her, Yeah, that's true. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. Now, we can read that super judgmentally, but there's nothing in the, in the context that makes it sound that way. What's important here is he's telling her that he knows her. And this is the entirety of their conversation. So this knowledge doesn't come from just sitting at the well. This knowledge has to come from somewhere else. It's been revealed to Jesus. See, there's something different about this Jewish man sitting at this particular well. And he's beginning to answer her question because she's asked for living water and he's beginning to reveal who he is and so she says i see i perceive that you are a prophet this is really important this is again one of those places that we don't kind of see what's going on but we have to understand that the samaritans and the jews diverged in another area too and that was their understanding of messiah so we're we're more familiar probably with the jewish understanding of messiah which the way that we see it played out in the scriptures is we see that they were expecting a king. They were expecting a king in the line of David who would come and overthrow the Romans and bring back the glory days of David's kingdom. He would sit on the throne and he would rule from that throne in Jerusalem. Well, it's not very hard to see why this picture of Messiah doesn't really work for the Samaritans. They don't recognize the Davidic line. They don't recognize a throne. Jerusalem's not the place, right? So they had a different view of Messiah. Their view of Messiah was not a king, but a prophet. A prophet is one who comes bearing a message from God, word from God, and so the Messiah was going to come and among other things was going to settle this dispute. The Messiah was going to come and not just free them from Rome, but the Messiah was going to come and show that they are vindicated, that they really are the true children of God, not the Jews. The Messiah was finally going to come and lift them up to their rightful place that they saw. So the Messiah for them was a very special prophet. So now it's kind of like like the spring of living water is beginning to gurgle just a little bit deep inside this woman somewhere. It's like belief is just starting to possibly kind of come forth because he's revealed that he already knows her. And so she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. And then she goes to ask him the most profound theological question that she could have possibly come up with as a Samaritan. And so she says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And so she asks him to settle this debate. She asks him, which one is it? And Jesus, he doesn't say, well, the Jews are right which is what she would expect. She, he, doesn't, he doesn't say to her, ah, oh, you silly Samaritan, we told you over and over again. The temple in Jerusalem, that's the place. But he also doesn't say to her, you know what? Yeah, these Jews, they got it wrong this whole time. I've been trying to tell them, it's Mount Gerizim, you're right. Instead, he tells her this, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people worship him he says it's not this mountain or that mountain both have it kind of wrong it's that god embodies the worship of his people and not only that god is seeking the people see both in in the jewish temple and the samaritan temple you kind of have this box where god is and everybody has to constantly come and seek god but jesus is revealing something about god to this woman and says this is the god who seeks This is a God who embodies. This is the God who goes out and doesn't respect cultural boundaries or religious boundaries and the boxes that we try to put God in. But God goes beyond those things and seeks to embody God's people. And so, excuse me. So the woman then says this kind of hopeful statement. I don't know if she's starting to believe that maybe he's the Messiah. Or if she just kind of wasn't satisfied with his answer and is just kind of longing for when Messiah will come. But she voices his hope to Jesus and says one day the Messiah will come and make all of these things clear. That's her hope. That one day the Messiah, this prophet, will come and clarify all of these things for them. And really her hope is that she and her people will be vindicated. Okay? Okay? But then Jesus has this really weird reply, it's worded strangely, and it's in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. This is the English Standard Version, this is one we typically use here, but if you have a different version and you're reading along right now, it probably says something different. In fact, if you have three or four versions open in front of you, you're an overachiever, but they probably all say three or four different things because the Greek here is really convoluted and really weird. It's not like Jesus is just answering her and saying, hey, you're looking for the Messiah? Ha, here I am. He's not like, bing, 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 bing. I am Messiah. That's not what he's doing. He's doing something really special here. Because see, she's hoping for Messiah and he's gonna reveal something so big to her. But for us to see it, we have to see what Jesus is doing. He's hearkening back to their shared history. He's hearkening all the way back to Exodus, to Moses. See, God came to Moses and called Moses through a burning bush and tells Moses, I have heard the cries of my people who were enslaved by Pharaoh and who were dying and suffering in Egypt. He says, I've heard their cries and I'm going to send you back to Egypt because Moses has fled into the wilderness because last time he was in Egypt, he killed a guy. So here Moses is out in the wilderness. There God meets him and says, I have heard the cries of my people. Go back. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He he gives this whole plan to Moses. And Moses looks at this plan, and it is big and audacious, and he immediately tells God, I am not qualified. He asks, his response is, who am I? He says, look, I stutter. I've got this slow tongue. Oh yeah, I killed that guy in Egypt. Like, I'm not the guy for this mission and God's response to Moses' self-disqualification is, I'll go with you, I'll go with you. See, this is not just a God who's holed up in some box that we have to go seek, nor is this just a God who sends us and waits for us to go and do, but this is a God who seeks, this is a God who calls, this is God who goes with us. And so he says to Moses, i will go with you that should be the end of the conversation but moses begins by asking who am i and now that god says don't worry trust in me he asks god who are you see god has already said go to your people go to my people and tell them that the god of your forefathers of abraham isaac and jacob this god says i hear you and i'm going to get you out But Moses says, that's not enough. I need to know because this is probably all going to get a lot worse before it gets better, if it gets better. And my own people will turn on me and they will ask me, who is this God that sent you? And he says, what am I to say? Who are you? And so we get this verse in in chapter 3, verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. I am. This, by the way, the reason we have all these caps, and it's kind of strange, it's not just me emphasizing it. This is where we get the holy name of God, Yahweh. That's what's going on there. But he says to him, he reveals this new personal name. He reveals himself in a new way to Moses, and he says, I am. Maybe you can see where I'm going with this, but go back to the well. And here this woman is, longing for Messiah, longing for the time when things will be made right, when she and her people will be vindicated. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm Messiah. Instead, he hearkens back and says, I am. I am if you don't get excited there, I don't know how to help you. Because what she's looking for is a prophet who will come and speak for God. But the one that she meets at the well is the embodiment of God himself. This is the word become flesh. See, she has all these preconceived notions about what this prophet Messiah will do but compared to who God is, they're this big. And so she says to him, you are looking for this one, but the one you found is I am. The God of your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the same God who came to Moses in the wilderness and qualified him beyond his own self-disqualifications, I am. This is the one that she encounters at the well. See, Moses, the disqualified Moses, was met by God in the wilderness. But here, the Samaritan woman was met by God at the well. See, Jesus reveals who God is. He doesn't just speak for God. He reveals who God is. And in Jesus we see, and in this encounter we see, that God is a God who loves. God is a God who seeks. God is a God who calls. And God is a God who qualifies. See, this is the God that the woman encounters at the well when she meets the word become flesh. And that encounter changes her. See, before when he... He revealed this information about her when he said, oh, you're right, you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five, and the man you're with now isn't your husband. Something must have begun to kind of creep up in her because this isn't information that this man should have. And it's like that spring of living water began to gurgle up from the depths, but it's like when she hears Jesus say, I am when he reveals God to her, it is like the dam inside of her bursts. And that spring bursts forth, and she is filled with living water. Filled to overflowing, in fact. And so we see her response. I love this in verse 28. We don't we don't see words. The conversation is over. But here's what we see. It says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. And I know that she probably left the water jar because there was... Far more important things going on because she was overcome with excitement, because she had this message that she had to get out. But I like to believe that there's a second meaning here that she leaves her water jar because she's not thirsty anymore, because she is finally satisfied, because she has encountered the word become flesh, because she has met the I am because she has seen God, the Father, and the Son. But so she leaves her water jar and she goes back to town, and remember Jesus had originally said, go and call your husband, but she has no husband to call, but she goes back anyway, and she goes and starts telling everybody. She calls everyone, she says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Now I love two things about this testimony. One, she is not qualified to testify. Literally, she could not have testified to a man. She could not have testified in a court of law. Her word meant nothing because of her standing, because she was a woman. And yet she doesn't let that stop her. But here's the other thing I love about her testimony. She doesn't have it all figured out. It's not like that dam bursts forth and suddenly she just sees everything clearly and has this great theology worked out start to finish, knows everything about Jesus. All she knows is that she has had an encounter with the I am at the well. And so she goes and she gives the most full testimony that she has, which is come and see because this happened to me. Could, Could it be? None of that was meant to rhyme, but it did. But could it be? This is her testimony. And it says that many Samaritans from the town believed in Jesus because of the unqualified testimony of this unqualified woman. Many people came to believe because of the testimony of this woman, he told me all that I've ever ever done. So all these people come back and you know what they find? They find Jesus still sitting at the well. And they come and they invite him back to their town. And he and the disciples stay with the Samaritans for two days. Do you think they ate with the Samaritans? The the unclean food of the Samaritans served on the unclean plates, eaten with unclean forks, drinking unclean drink out of unclean vessels. did they sleep they slept in the homes the unclean homes of the samaritans their enemies and they stayed there for two days and it says in verse 42 they said to the woman it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world what a great testimony that her initial testimony is come and see. Come and see, come judge for yourself. Just come encounter this one. And they believe enough to come and see. But what great testimony it is that it's not that they believe in her and that they've come and seen so much in her, but they saw in her pointing to him. And they come to believe in Jesus because of their own encounter would the word become flesh at the well? See, this conversation, it should never have happened. We shouldn't even have this story to read today. But we have this story because the word became flesh. We have this story because the word become flesh met this woman at the well. He saw her, he knew her, he sought her He loved her. We have this story because Jesus loved as the Father loves. We have this story because God meets us at the well. And we have this story because this story isn't just about who this woman was. This story is about who God is. John chapter 1, verse 14 is where we get our name for this series. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the miracle of the incarnation. The Word becomes flesh and has dwelt among us. But here's the thing about the miracle of the incarnation. It's not a one and done miracle. It's not a one-off. It's a one of many It's the first of many because what we see is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but through the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that same word now dwells in us. See, remember what Jesus was talking about. It's not this temple or that temple in which God dwells, but God dwells in God's people. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? See, the word became flesh in Jesus, but through Jesus, the word continues to become flesh over and over again in you and in me and in us and in the body of Christ. Do you see, your story and my story, your story isn't just about who you are, or who you were, your story is about who God is. It's God who loves, who seeks, who calls, who qualifies. See, God meets us at the well. That's the kind of God that we serve. We serve the God who seeks us, who sees us and knows us, and still loves us. God who meets us at the well and dwells in us. I want to read these two verses to you again. It says, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Then they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world This is my prayer for us. This is my hope and my prayer for us at New City that we will be a people so transformed by our encounter with God at the well, that we will be so transformed by the revelation of I am, that we will be so transformed by the living water that springs up and flows out and overflows from us, that we will be so transformed by God that we will live lives, that image God in such a way that people will say, I came at first because of you. I saw something in you. See, if we image God in this way, if we really are the body of Christ, they will see God in us. But our testimony will be fulfilled when they say, but I don't believe because of you. I came because of the testimony, but I believe now because I have met, I am at the well if this sounds like a mission that is too big, if you look at it and say, I am not qualified for that, you are in good company. But let me me remind you that Moses was not qualified because of what he did. This woman was not qualified because of what he did. We are not qualified because of what we do. We are qualified because who God is. And God says, I love you. God says, I call you. God says, I qualify you. So in 1 Thessalonians, we have this benediction. It says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then hear these words. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. I wish that we were at summer camp. Uh, I'm the youth pastor. I, we just talked about the summer camp meeting come up. I wish we were, we were all at summer camp because if we were at summer camp, I could have made some cool like paper mache well and I would invite you all to the well right now. I don't have a well to invite you to, but I, I do have some tables. And whether you're here with us in person, we have physical tables that I can invite you to or if you're at home, I invite you to, to get some elements for communion and it doesn't have to be specific things but get cup and get bread because this table for us today, this is the well. It's at this table that we encounter the I am who tells us who we are. See, it's at this table that we find these two things. We find broken bread, the bread of life, Christ's body broken for us. And we find a cup And in that cup we find living water. We find the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And if we take that cup and we drink it, we'll finally be satisfied in him. But as we come to this table today, as we eat and as we drink, my prayer is that we will become that which we eat and drink. That as we eat the flesh, we will become the flesh. As we drink the cup of living water, that that living water will spring up in us. And that we will see again that even in that moment, the word becomes flesh again in us. And as we go from this place and as you go into your neighborhoods at home, I pray that we'll take that living water and it will spring forth from us in such a way that others will look and say, I came to see for myself, and now I believe.